Our text this morning is the first six verses of chapter 3 of the book of Ephesians. It is good to be back in Katy. It's also good to know exactly where you can pick up when you get back, where you left off. If you would please give attention to the reading of God's holy word. The word of the Lord is completely inerrant. The word of the Lord is completely authoritative. And the word of the Lord is completely sufficient. Ephesians chapter 3, beginning at verse 1. For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have written briefly. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. Let's pray for his blessing upon it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask this morning that by your word and your spirit, you would change us, that you would mold us into the image of your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. We ask, O Lord, that we would learn from your word and that it would take deep root in our hearts. This we ask in Christ's precious name. Amen. This morning at the beginning of Ephesians chapter 3, we see Paul talking about a mystery. And the question then that comes to us as we think about this is, what is a mystery? For many of us, a mystery is something that is impossible to understand. It is something vague and unknown that tugs at the sides of our conscience, and we're never really sure how much we don't know about it. For those of us that are men and boys, perhaps a way to think about this is the way we think about women. They're a mystery to us. We're positive we'll never understand them fully. We're not quite sure when the other shoe will drop. But the thing is, that's the way we as Americans think about mysteries. It's not the way that the Bible or the Greek thinks of the word mystery. The word mystery in the Bible actually refers to something that is not only unknown but it is impossible to know until God reveals it. And then when he does, it can be known and known well. That is what Paul means. He is describing something that is unknown until God chooses to reveal it in his word. But once he has, we can then understand it and live in accordance with it. And so this morning we're going to look at the mystery of the gospel. And so do not have an American view of this. Do not think that the gospel is something you'll never quite be able to understand. 
It is something that God has revealed to us in His Word that we might know it. And in the Gospel mystery, what is revealed to us are three things. First, it is revealing ourselves. It reveals who we are. Second, it is revealing Jesus. It reveals who Jesus is to us. And then third, it is revealing the church. The design that God has for His church. Revealing ourselves, revealing Jesus, and revealing the church. Let's begin then now by looking at chapter 3 and verse 1. For this reason I, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus... Paul does something here that seems unusual, especially if you've been with us following along through the first two chapters of Ephesians. He actually turns to himself. The great bulk of what Paul has been doing is pointing us to the Lord himself, to God's plan and God's work and God's salvation. And Paul really doesn't appear much in the first two chapters of Ephesians. But now, he seems to draw himself into the picture. And he does something that's very interesting. He is about to move on in chapter 3 to prayer for the Ephesians. And he does something that would not get him a good grade in a speech class. Do you see it? Perhaps your translation has flagged it for you by having a long dash at the end of verse 1. Paul is about ready to pray and he says, Oh, that reminds me of something else. Let me share this with you. He goes off on a rabbit trail. He goes off on a tangent, we might say, if we were judging him on style alone. But... The question then is, why does he do this? Why does he start to pray? And then he begins speaking about this mystery that has been revealed to him. I think the answer is that Paul wants the Ephesians to understand who he is. He wants them to know how God is at work in and through people, including himself. And he wants them to know that the mystery of the gospel is something that reveals to us who we are. Now, Paul is not a good example of modern American Christianity. Of how Jesus just makes everything in life better. There is a tendency in modern American Christianity to think that we need to sprinkle a bit of Jesus on our lives to make every aspect of it better. If we want to enjoy our job more and be more productive, we can be better at it because of Jesus. If we want to have better relationships and to get along with others better, we can do it because of Jesus. If we want to be more sound in our fiscal finances and to live with security and wealth, we can do it because of Jesus. But you see, Paul's life, the great Apostle Paul, belies all of this. Paul wasn't powerful, Paul wasn't wealthy. Paul did not have an easy life, unless you consider being whipped, stoned, and shipwrecked easy. Paul certainly knew the Lord and was close to Him. But this idea that is rampant in our age, that somehow Jesus' job is to make our lives better, is belied by Paul. You see, Paul actually had a proper view of himself. And that's one of the things that he's doing for us here 
at the beginning of chapter 3. Do you remember (coughs) that Paul was not originally named Paul? It's a small detail, but do you remember what Paul's original name was? (coughs) Excuse me. It was Saul. And to someone hearing the name Saul, it would connotate to them the idea of being large, powerful, mighty. That's what the name Saul means. And of course, King Saul reminds us of this. The reason he became the king was because he was so much taller than everyone else. He had such powerful, heavy armor that David couldn't even put it on. And now, Paul's name is Paul. It's interesting, do you know what Paul means? It means small. It means teeny tiny. That's what it means in the Latin. You see, Paul has a proper view of himself because of the gospel and because of what God has done in his life, that Paul is not big, but God is big. Paul is small. Now, this is the opposite of what we would expect, because you see, so often our temptation is to focus on what makes us important. We think that we're good at teaching others things, and so part of the work of the Lord in us is to make us better teachers. We're good with people. And so we think part of the Lord's work is to make us better with other people. You see, somehow God's job is to make us bigger, better, faster than before. But Paul says that's not the case. The job of the gospel, the mystery of the gospel is, is that we see how great and magnificent God is and how small and dependent upon Him we are. You see... Paul knew his life was hard. He didn't need anyone to come up to him and to explain to him the difficulties of his life. And he he tells us this because it was a fact that it was impossible for Paul to get away from. Paul tells us that he is a prisoner. And the word for prisoner here means one who is in chains. You see, Paul didn't need anyone to remind him he was a prisoner. All he needed to do was to try to move his left leg. And realize it couldn't go in that direction because there was an iron chain chaining him to a guard. You see, in the days of Paul, there were no mandatory outside workouts. No weightlifting in prison. No gluten-free meals. No libraries. There was a guard that you were chained to for almost the entirety of the day. And when you weren't chained to him, you were thrown into a pit. And chains were put over the top of the pit. You see, Paul doesn't need a reminder that his life is hard. But what he has to understand here is he tells us that God is there for him. You see, often we focus on what will make our lives better. And when the better doesn't happen, then we become bitter. Not so the Apostle Paul. He begins this chapter by saying, for this reason, he, a prisoner, is coming to the Ephesians. And the reason is what he has just relayed in all of chapter 2. He tells us that his importance comes from God. And that his purpose comes from God. And as a result of that, 
it allowed him to deal with his circumstances. Because you see, the other thing the mystery of the gospel tells us about ourselves is it tells us what God is doing and that that's important for us to see. Now, as Paul writes to the Ephesians, it might have been difficult for them to understand what was going on. It would have been hard for them to wrap their minds around Paul, a prisoner. You could just imagine, Paul had been their pastor for some period of time. He had been teaching them about the great blessings that would come to them in Christ. He had taught them from God's word that they were safe in God's hands as his children. He had talked to them about the glories of following Jesus Christ. And now here he is, a prisoner. That would be exceedingly difficult for them to understand. What is God doing here? Why is he putting Paul through this? Why isn't God paying attention and fixing the situation? This could be hard for us as well, can't it? Why do I have to move? Why did I not get into my top college? Why doesn't this person like me? Why can't I get ahead in my job? You see, sometimes we are tempted to focus on everything we don't have and to blame God because of it. As if somehow he's asleep at the switch. But you see, the reality of the gospel is is that God is at at work in our lives each and every day, even when we are not aware of it. Even when we actively think he's not. You see, Paul realizes that God is in control. Do you notice what he says about himself as a prisoner? Whose prisoner is he? He's a prisoner for Christ Jesus. Now, we might say if we were in a court of law, Paul, you're missing the point here. You're actually a prisoner of Nero, you know, the emperor of Rome. You remember that what caused Paul to become a prisoner was in the book of Acts... He was preaching and teaching, and the Jews sought to attack him, and the Romans intervened, and they arrested him, and eventually they shipped him off to Rome to to stand trial. But in Paul's mind, he's not a prisoner of Nero. It's not that this wicked emperor, this hostile society, has taken him over, has stopping Paul from doing what he should be doing. It's not that Nero's preventing Paul from planting churches and living his best life. No, it's God who's at work here. Paul is a prisoner because Jesus Christ wants him to be a prisoner in this place at this time. That means God has a purpose In all of these events. Now this is freeing for us. Because when we understand that in the midst of our lives. With all of the struggles and the trials. That God is at work. Not in spite of those things. But in those things. There is hope for us. Now notice how Paul reacts. The first thing that he does. I want you to notice. Especially young people. He doesn't complain. Dinner's not hot enough. My room's not big enough. I don't have the latest phone. Nobody likes me enough. You make me do too many chores. Right? Or older people. 
I don't get the respect I should get at work. The neighbors don't pay attention to me. You see, we're used to, quite frankly, complaining when we don't get our way. When things don't work out well. Now imagine if you were Paul, if you were whisked out of the middle of God's work, planting churches, building up churches, and you were a prisoner in a foreign city. That's something you've got to complain about. And yet Paul doesn't complain at all. Notice something else that he doesn't do. He doesn't look around and say, Oh, I guess this is the best that life gets. I shouldn't have expected anything better than this. It's probably going to get worse tomorrow. Right? For some of us, our minds travel first and we channel our inner Eeyore. We think that it's not really complaining and yet it certainly sounds like it, doesn't it? We're just resigned to how bad life is and how miserable things are. But Paul doesn't do that. What does he do? Let your eye go down to verse 13 of this chapter. He says, So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. You see, Paul actually does the exact opposite. He's rejoicing in his circumstances. Now, how can he have this kind of a reaction to his circumstances? Now, I want to disabuse you of an immediate excuse that you will use you will say to yourself, well, that's just Paul's personality. My personality is different than Paul's. He must be more happy-go-lucky or carefree. I don't think you've met the Apostle Paul of the Bible. Before he was converted, he used to breathe out murder and threats against others. After he was converted, he would confront people. And do you remember the incident where the Pharisee comes up and insults him, and Paul calls him a whitewashed tomb? And then he has to actually apologize because he realizes a man of God shouldn't be doing that. Paul's natural bent was not to roll with the flow. He was an uptight kind of guy. He was a type A personality. And yet in the midst of this trying circumstance that the Lord has placed him, he's rejoicing. Because he is working out in his own mind and life what God is doing. He's trying to see God's purpose. He's asking the right questions about the circumstances. He's not questioning God. He's questioning how these circumstances are meant to be taken. And that's why he says he is a prisoner for Christ Jesus on behalf of the Gentiles. Now, get this. If Paul were the man that he was, if he had not met Jesus on the road to Damascus, he would not be a prisoner. The old Saul Paul hated Gentiles. Wouldn't eat with them. Wouldn't sit next to them. Didn't want to be around them at all. And it's interesting, if you were to guess whom the Lord would send to the Gentiles of all of his disciples... You might say to yourself, well, well, maybe Matthew, because he was a tax collector, and he worked with Gentiles. Maybe John, because he's the, the apostle of, of love. You would not have guessed Paul. Paul would be your last guess. And the irony here is that God has so shaped Paul's life that his ministry and his glory would be found. 
Do you think about your life that way today? That all of the things that are happening to you, good and bad, are happening because God is at work in your life. Because the mystery of the gospel is that God works in and through his people. This is what he's doing with Paul. God is at work through this hardship with him. Now, it is not always easy to see how God works in hardships. It's not always easy to know why. Sometimes years will go by before we will understand. But this is the gospel. That it is all about God and His kingdom and His work and not about me. So the question comes to you this morning. Are you ready to trust God with your life and your circumstances? To trust Him that He knows best. That He has a purpose And that He is working in your life. The second thing that we see revealed in this mystery of the gospel is Jesus Himself. So Paul begins now to talk, as I've said to you, he is already off on one rabbit trail tangent. In verse 2. He says, Assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me, How the mystery was made known to me by revelation. So he's about to describe this mystery to us. The problem is, is that Paul goes off on a second rabbit trail. He says, as I have written briefly, when you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ. So before he can get to the main mystery he wants to talk about in verses 5 and 6, he talks about another mystery, the mystery of Jesus. Now, this can be confusing to us, but remember the definition of mystery. That a mystery is something that is unknown, unthinkable, until God reveals it. This is a reminder for you and for me how dependent we are on the Scriptures. That we dare not try to work in our marriage, to live in our family to relate to our parents or our children, to work at our job, to do anything apart from the Word of God. Because it is the Word of God that informs us about all of our life. And this main mystery will be picked up again in verse 5, but now he digresses to tell us about the mystery of Christ, the mystery of the Messiah. This is the foundational mystery, Jesus and His work. Now, what does this mean? Who is this Messiah? Who is this Savior? Well, think about it. He's fully and completely God. And yet the Scriptures tell us He is fully and completely man. Now, could you have ever dreamed that up if it was not a man in God's Word? No, you wouldn't even think about it you would have come up with all of the varying heresies that have come up throughout the centuries. That he's a mixture of man and God. That he's only God. That he's only man. You would not have ever been able to even think of it. It's the mystery of the gospel. We have no idea what God is doing until he reveals it to us. Think about the incarnation. Now don't just think cute baby in the straw manger. Think about the idea that the infinite inhabits the finite. That the creator of everything is born 
and needs to be fed. Could you ever possibly come up with that on your own? No, you couldn't. It's a mystery revealed by God. Would you have expected the Messiah to come and be born in a humble place? To parents of modest means to work with His hands? Of course not. You would expect the Messiah, God Himself, to be born in a palace and to have servants everywhere. Again, we never expect this. And that's the glory of the gospel. That God's ways are not our ways. And that He reveals them to us in His Word. But the the gospel not only reveals Jesus in who He is, it also reveals Jesus in what He has done. Now think about it again. Because Jesus is man, He was made under the law. Now that's almost as incomprehensible as the incarnation. That the one who is the lawgiver voluntarily submits to the law. And worse yet, he obeys in a context of betrayal and hurt. You've just lost another excuse this morning. Well, I know that I didn't act properly, but you don't know what that person did to me. You don't know how hard I've had it. You don't know how much I have to put up with with other people. Well, let's see. Are you perfect and sinless? Have you never sinned against anyone ever in thought, word, and deed? Is everyone dependent upon you for breath and life? And then you are sinned against. And yet our Lord still keeps every bit of the law. You see... We could not even comprehend this apart from the mystery of the gospel. How do we think then that we can avoid and escape judgment? How can we think that the law doesn't apply to us if the law applied to Jesus? How do we think we get a free pass? Or for those of us that know the Lord Jesus Christ, how do we think that we then are not required to live in a way that glorifies God when Jesus himself submitted and glorified his Father. You see, the Lord Jesus Christ lived in accordance with the law a perfect life and he paid the price of sin. He was perfectly innocent and yet he paid the entirety of the price. This was the only way the wrath of God could be satisfied. And in Jesus' life, we also see him breaking the power of death. Because of who Jesus is, death could not hold him. Could we imagine, again, apart from the mystery of the gospel, the idea that death would reverse itself. That life would come from death. And that death would be no more, it would be vanquished by the work of the Messiah. It's contrary to everything we would think. And yet God's word tells us it's true. You see, once it's been revealed to us, we can then believe it. We have proof that the victory is won. We can have hope that we will live because of Jesus' resurrection. The other thing we have been given by Jesus is a promise that he's returning again. Now, let's face it. This world can be a very depressing place, right? There's so much out there that's wrong. 
If you really want to bring yourself down, just turn on the news for about 20 minutes. And there's a hopelessness about it, isn't there? How many of you think in the next six months all of these incidents of violence across America will just stop and be turned around? That we'll never experience riots like just happened yesterday in Milwaukee. Are you really confident of that in the next two months? Six months? Twenty years? But you see, Jesus says that everything will be made right. That he will come, and not in a thousand year plan, but in the twinkling of an eye, all will be made perfect and aligned with the will of God. That his people will be glorified. That his kingdom will be established. That he is coming back to reign. And so what that means for you and for me is a freedom that it is not our job to fix the world. Not only is the world not going to get fixed by us, Jesus already has that covered. The mystery of the gospel revealed to us is that everything will work out, not because of wishful thinking, not because of our efforts, but because of the promise of Jesus Christ to return and establish God's kingdom. Have you ever wondered how Paul could have the mindset that he has in this book of Ephesians? I mean, Paul was an active man. He was a political man. He was disturbed by circumstances around him. But Paul trusted in Jesus to keep his promises. Is that where your hope lies this morning? The third thing that we see from this text is that the mystery of the gospel is revealing the church. It reveals first and foremost what the church has. Paul now will move back. He's gone off on one rabbit trail, gone off on a second rabbit trail, and now he's working his way back. Because you see, he's not just being absent-minded. There's a purpose to the way Paul is speaking. And he takes us now back to this main mystery he was discussing. It is founded upon the mystery of Christ. But the emphasis in this letter to the Ephesians is on the church, its nature, its makeup, its blessings, its purpose. And so again now he begins to reveal the mystery of the church. This is something that would not be known, but that God would reveal it. Now, I think what we can understand here is that when Paul says the mystery of the church, he does not mean the fact that Gentiles will be saved. Because if that's what he means, then verse 5 makes no sense. Do you see it? He talks about this mystery which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations as it has now been revealed to the holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. If all Paul meant was that people who were not Jews throughout the world would be saved, verse 5 makes no sense. Because the Old Testament is full of the knowledge of the salvation of Gentiles. Remember, the promise to Abraham was that he would be a blessing to the nations. Do you know how you translate nations in Greek? Gentiles. Isaiah tells us over and over again how salvation will come to the Gentiles. As a matter of fact, what got Paul in trouble and got him arrested, he was 
near the temple. And they hushed the crowd. And he began to speak at some length about his story. He told them who he was and how he met Jesus. And he went on and on. And it says that the crowd listened quietly. And then at the end, Paul quotes the Old Testament and he says, salvation has come to the Gentiles. And the crowd explodes. He was quoting the Old Testament. So you see, what Paul means here is not just that the Gentiles are to be saved, but what was not revealed in the Old Testament was how they would be brought into the church. Because in the Old Testament, the way you got saved by being a Gentile was you became a Jew. You could be saved as a Gentile, but you had to be circumcised. You had to follow Jewish dietary laws. You had to wear Jewish clothing. That was how you were saved. You essentially de-Gentiled yourself. What Paul is saying here is that that barrier is now gone. You don't need to become a Jew in order to be saved. Go home and fry up the bacon. You don't need to follow Jewish restrictions to be saved. You see, this is new. It's something completely unthought of. Throughout all of the covenantal history of God's people, they never would have considered that the Gentiles would come in on equal footing with the Jews. And what Paul is telling us is that this ancient, absolute barrier is now done away with. Now, this is difficult for us to grasp. Because we live in a place and a time in which absolute barriers, for the most part, do not exist. We live in an international city with people from all over the world, with all sorts of ethnicities, with all sorts of cultural backgrounds. That would never have happened in Paul's day. You wouldn't have married someone from another nationality. You wouldn't have even lived in the same town with them. And what Paul is saying is that those barriers are now gone. And the theocracy is no more. There is no more a small Jewish kingdom. There is now an international organism, the church. And what that means for Gentiles is that they are now, Paul says, fellow heirs. All that had been promised to Abraham is now theirs. It had been promised to Abraham and his offspring that they would be the heir of the world. And now the Gentiles are brought into the church and they are heir of the world. Now stop for a minute and think about that. That's not just Gentiles. That's not just Ephesians. If you know the Lord Jesus Christ by faith and you have placed your trust in Him as your Savior, and if you have given up trying to work and earn favor with God, then... You are a fellow heir with Abraham and with Paul and with the Ephesians. The world is yours. Now, to look at our lives now, we would not imagine that would be the case. It doesn't feel like the world's my oyster. I still get sick. My shoulder still hurts if I don't exercise it. I still have to keep a budget. But you see, the mystery of the gospel is that God is preparing all things for His people. And in spite of what our circumstances might tell us, the truth is otherwise. Paul goes on. Now, I like to think in my sanctified imagination that Paul is 
visibly getting worked up here. Paul is an emotional man. And one of the signs, I believe, in the Scriptures that you can get when Paul is excited or emotional is he makes up words. He does this occasionally. And he actually does this right here. This phrase, members of the same body, is actually a word Paul makes up. He takes the word for body, he takes the preposition for together or with, and he puts them together and he makes up a word. And what he says is, you are together as one body. Now what does that mean? Martin Lloyd-Jones puts it so well that I'm going to share his illustration with you. Lloyd-Jones says that a servant could be a co-heir with the son and have access to all of the goods and stuff that the son has. But he would still be a servant. But if the servant is made a son, he is then a part of the family. And you see, that's what Paul is describing for us. It's not just the benefits that we get in the church. It is the fact that we are a part of the Lord's family. And again, how could we imagine this apart from the revelation of the mystery of the gospel? That God would stoop down and gather to himself a people, a family, children, and include us. The final thing we see about the church is not just what the church is, but what God is doing in the church. You see, this last phrase Paul tells us is that we are partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus. Now notice that promise is singular, not plural. And I think what Paul is referring here is the promise that was given originally to Abraham. The main promise that Abraham leaned upon. And it wasn't about wealth, it wasn't about health, it wasn't about happiness. Do you know what the main promise God gave Abraham was? It was the promise that he would be Abraham's God forever. That promise comes to the followers of Jesus. God is your God forever. And again, we can't imagine this. We would think God might put up with us until we messed up. Or at least as long as we were useful. But that's not what Paul says. What Paul says is that God will be our God because He has promised to be our God. All of our circumstances, all of who we are aside, God is our God. He will establish His covenant with us. Everlasting. Now how does all this come about? Look at the last few words of verse 6. This is an emphatic placement in the original Greek language. At the end. It's meant to kind of hit you at the end like a drum roll. Pow! Through the gospel. You see, it's in this final place here for emphasis. Because that is our hope. Our hope is not our circumstances. Our hope is not our skills. Our hope is not our knowledge. Our hope is in the mystery of the gospel that has been revealed to us. This morning, the Lord through His Apostle Paul 
and through his humble servant calls you to trust in Jesus. That is your hope. It will not make your circumstances instantly change or get better. It will not make everything in your life line up perfectly. But your hope is the gospel. With, in, and in spite of your circumstances. Your hope is in the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your servant Paul and for your revelation through him to us. We thank you, Lord, that you have indeed revealed to us the mystery of the gospel. And we ask that you would remind us of all that you have done for us in Christ, that we might have great hope. This we ask in the precious and matchless name of our Lord Jesus Christ. And all God's people said, Amen.